Welcome to Napava Coffee House, presented by Napava, the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, in collaboration with the Harvard Law School Center on the Legal Profession. My name is Genevieve Fantono. I'm in the Harvard Law School class of 2022, and I'm really delighted to be producing this project as part of my student fellowship with the Harvard Law School Center on the Legal Profession. In today's episode, episode three, you will hear a conversation between our host, Lawrence Tu, and our guest, Marie O. Huber, who is the Chief Legal Officer at eBay. So a little bit about Larry and Marie. Our host, Larry Tu, retired from CBS Corporation in 2020. In his very exciting and very successful career, Larry has held a range of roles, including uh, the Chief Legal Officer and Senior Advisor to the CEO at CBS Corporation, General Counsel at Dell, General Counsel at NBC Universal, General Counsel for the APAC region at Goldman Sachs, um, partner at a major law firm, including managing partner at that firm's Hong Kong office, and so, so much more. Meanwhile, today's guest, Marie O. Huber, is the Chief Legal Officer at eBay. As all of you know, eBay is a global commerce leader connecting millions of buyers and sellers around the world. Um, so Marie has been at eBay since 2015. And as Chief Legal Officer, she leads a global team of over 300 people spanning legal, government relations, and public policy matters. So this spans everything from corporate governance and board and ESG matters to uh, litigation and dispute resolution and M&A and competition. Uh, Marie also serves on the boards of two companies. So we have a fantastic conversation between Larry and Marie lined up just for you. If you are an in-house attorney who is climbing up the ranks and hoping to become a GC someday, today's episode of Napava Coffee House is an absolute must listen. It is full of substantive insights, like what is the difference between you know, coming up internally versus coming in externally for a role? Uh, how do we think about some of the competing pressures uh, between work and family? Uh, how do we build the skill set uh, to manage people problems? And how do we ask for feedback, you know, both informally and formally? At one point in this conversation, Marie says, people are not born knowing how to lead global diverse teams spanning 15 plus countries. You just have to make a few mistakes, have a few successes, and then you learn. Um, and as a law student, as a very, very junior person uh, who uh, has had some small successes, but mostly just makes a ton of mistakes every single day, I really love the growth mindset and the actionable advice that you hear uh, in this interview, especially the bit about asking for feedback. So in that spirit, if you have any feedback to give me, to Larry, or to the Napava Coffeehouse Project, please leave a comment below. We'd really love to hear your thoughts. All right then, without any further ado, here is Larry and Marie. Well, Marie, thank you very much for joining us. Um, you are one of the highest profile Asian lawyers in the country, and we are so pleased that you are a guest on our coffee house session. So a big thank you for sharing your story and your journey with us. Thanks for having me. Let's start uh, with a little bit of your personal history uh, for the benefit of the audience. You know, where you grew up, where your parents are from, your early schooling, just a little bit of the color of your early history. Sure. I was born outside of DC and my parents are immigrants from South Korea. 
and I mostly grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I went to a large public high school in the suburbs of Milwaukee, and I have to say there weren't very many Asian Americans or other people of color at my high school. How was the Korean food uh, in your town? <laughs> there wasn't a lot of Korean food there. We, if you wanted to get really good Korean food, you had to go to Chicago at the mm. time. And so you grew up there and then went off to Yale College, right. um, where you studied economics and also right. spent some time at the London School of Economics. Now, was that, um, were you at that point destined to go get a PhD in economics and he heading into academia, or did you have something else in mind at the time as you think back to where your head was at back in those college days? Yeah, yeah. And I wish I could say I had these grand plans and I knew exactly what I was going to do, but I, <laughs> I didn't. Um, I was actually thinking about going to graduate school in international relations at the time. Uh, both of my parents are academics, political scientists. Um, my dad was a political scientist in Far Eastern politics. My, my mother uh, is still a historian, Chinese history and, and um, East Asian history. So I wasn't really planning on going to law school, um, but then at the last minute, I decided to go to law school somewhat. So, I mean, it couldn't have been that last minute, right? Because you had to take yeah. the LSAT. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. so, yes. What, so what was the thought process that led you to go in that direction versus maybe an academic career, which you might've been heading in for a while? Yeah, or or possibly working in government or yes. um, policy, public policy. Right. I wasn't quite sure what I could do with, say, a master's in international relations. And I thought that a law degree might give me more options to either work in government. And I did work on the Hill one summer during college. I was an intern for... Um, the late Senator Bill Proxmire, William Proxmire from my home state of Wisconsin um, it, to either work in the public or the private sector. So were you, when you were in law school, did you um, ever give thought to veering back into that field or once you were there, you fell in love with the law and that was going to be your career? <laughs> yeah, well, one of the things I really love about the law is and, and about my jobs my job today is I feel like you're at the intersection of law, business, policy, technology, and I get to dabble in all of that. And then also having, for instance, government affairs and public policy be a part of uh, the law department and partnering with our colleagues there, I feel like it, it provides that window. So, I mean, some of our audience uh, may actually be law students or folks very early in their legal career. When you were finishing law school, did you have a clear idea of the kind of lawyer you wanted to be? I mean, did you know lawyers? Did you, did you grow up with lawyers who were family friends? Did you have a view about what field you would actually specialize in? Or was it an open book? Yeah, yeah. I didn't grow up with lawyers. In fact, I grew up um, on college campuses because my, my parents were professors and administrators. 
And afterwards, once I started practicing law and I had friends who grew up in families of lawyers, I, I realized like, oh, that must have made it easier for you to understand like just that whole language. And as a junior lawyer, I felt like it probably would have been pretty helpful to have parents or people that you could turn to because my family was very much not um, business oriented or we didn't have lawyers in the family. Now we do, my brother's a lawyer um, as well, but I didn't grow up around lawyers yeah. at all. Did your parents have any particular reaction to your choice of career? Were they all for it? <laughs> well, Were they resistant? Were they trying to uh, negotiate for a different outcome? No, well, maybe like a lot of, us, <laughs> we, uh, I had um, somewhat traditional parents uh, who didn't grow up here and where education was supreme and um, what you did, I mean, at least for them, education was more important than power or money or, and so, having my sister's a doctor and my brother's a lawyer and I'm a lawyer. So very much a family where they wanted and expected us to go to grad school. And we sort of joke around that uh, you kind of had to get a degree that ended in a D <laughs> like PhD, MD, JD, and my husband's an MBA. And so he's like, Oh, does that, is that good enough? Does that count? Yeah, I don't think that counts. I don't, yeah, I don't see. Yeah. I don't see a D in that acronym. No. Yeah. yeah. So off to law firms uh, for the first four or five years of your career after law school, uh, East and West Coast, uh, doing M and A work and securities work. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, that was that a choice you made to go into M and A? Was it influenced by something that you found interesting about it? Um, yeah. How did that focus occur? Yeah. Well. First of all, part of my reason for going to a big firm after law school was to help pay off my student loans, just being super practical about it. And then in terms of the field, I'd liked, I liked business or from the little I knew or what I was learning about it. And I liked the idea of, of doing deals and transactions and being able to learn about other companies, interact with different sorts of people, get to meet people. Um, I found that exciting and stimulating. Hmm. So this may feel like ancient history to you at this point, because those law firm days are so long ago yeah, and law firms was. have certainly changed a lot. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, um, if you could give advice to young lawyers just starting their careers in law firms, uh, would you say anything to them about how to make use of that time? I mean, you, you ended up obviously not staying in a firm, nor did I, and many of us did not, but many do and go on to have very successful careers in law firms. But regardless, we all, or most of us started there and got something out of that experience, which then launched us into other things down the road. How, although law firm life in the early years isn't necessarily the easiest for young associates, mm -hmm. would you give any guidance to a young lawyer about how to make the, the most of that time? Yeah, I think it's so right to recognize that um, 
it may not be the easiest. Like my family talks about how they had to come rescue me before the holidays or, um, but really take advantage of that time if you have it. And as you said, people have wonderful lifelong careers in law firms. So to me, the best part about being in a law firm is you really get to immerse yourself in the law, in the legal field. If you think about it, if you go to a corporation, you go into business, you go into something else, law is not, it's not the revenue generator. It's not the main topic, right? You might be supporting, you might be partnering, but you get to be surrounded by super smart, very interesting, curious, driven people who are of like mind like you and just try to soak that up learn as much as possible either by doing learning how to draft to communicate to negotiate to handle a meeting to interact with clients to interact with your colleagues to figure out how to bring a project together one thing i realize is so much of our work in the real world is, is somewhat glorified project management or leadership. I mean, it gets to be leadership when you get more experienced and when you are at a certain position, but having that ability to walk down the hall and to get advice or just to kick around an issue with a colleague who's knowledgeable is just such a special and unique opportunity and something that I, I still miss today because when you're in-house, you are often alone in dealing with issues. And especially think about it, you could be in a small office, you could be in a different country, even if you're say at headquarters and you're working in a big company, you might be the only person dealing with that specialty. And so, yes, you might have some colleagues around, but you don't have that richness of the ability to have that dialogue on issues. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could not agree more. I think people should soak it in and, and get the most out of it because it's really a rich time period, even though it has lots of miserable elements as well in terms of hard work and long hours. Um, it, it's a place where you're surrounded by like-minded people doing similar things and you're, and you're learning from each other. Yeah. And, and the other thing I'd say too, is like, um, get out of your office. If you have opportunities to go to lunch, to go to coffee, go to dinner, go on a business trip, um, even if it's hard, like do all those things that get you out meeting people, interacting with people. Like you might think, oh my God, I have to, I have to write this brief or I have to draft this contract or I need to write this note or answer this question. But that's what's hard to understand in the moment when you're a more junior lawyer. That those relationships that you can build and that that practical knowledge and advice you can get from being with other people and interacting with them at the time is just invaluable. 
So in year five, after law school, you went in-house um, and never looked back to uh, resume your career in the law firm. Um, I'm curious what led to that. Was it something that you wanted to do? Uh, were you looking for it? Did opportunity come knocking on your door unbeknownst to you? What, what, what actually occurred? Yeah, well, I, I never intended to stay at a law firm for the whole duration. Um, I think they're great places and many people have rich and rewarding careers. Um, but I knew that wasn't what, what, what interested me most. I like being a part of something bigger beyond the law. What, what uh, drives me and fascinates me a lot is the cross-disciplinary nature of what working in a business and a company provides. And the chance to see something through from, from beginning to end. And sometimes that's not always easy, right? Because you're dealing with, with sometimes things don't work out well or things blow up. But um, just having that is something I found really exciting. And so um, in terms of how I got a job, back in the days of print newspapers, <laughs> there was a publication called The Recorder and they had classifieds in the back. And there was an ad for <laughs> a position at HP in Palo Alto at the time we were living in San Francisco. And so I just applied and interviewed and yeah. Fascinating. How much was geography a factor? I mean, we all, as we navigate our careers, deal with family considerations, location, children in school and so on. I mean, how did that factor into your decision about that job and the ones that followed? Yeah, well, so my husband and I had been doing long distance, New York, Chicago, Chicago, New York. We got married and then moved to San Francisco. And um, I've been, since that time, we've been fortunate. We've been in the Bay Area since then. Mm. And, um, but one thing I tell lawyers that I mentor is if you can be mobile, and um, that will provide you with more opportunities. And I feel fortunate and, and I've certainly had opportunities in other places, um, but living in the Bay Area, it seems like there were plenty of great opportunities here so that we didn't necessarily have to move if I wanted a new opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So from there, 15 years at Agilent, including six years at the end as, as the GC. So you ascended within the ranks and got promoted into the GC position. Um, I'm curious whether when that happened, there was a, an external search process. Was it a competitive process? Did the company look outside? Or did they just know that you were the person and you ascended? No, so the, the two GC roles, one was internal at Agilent and the other, I came from the outside to eBay. And so at Agilent, there definitely was a search process. There was a national search process. Hmm. And I think in, in many cases, even if you are an internal candidate, um, companies 
would feel like they should run a search process. Um, and so what I tell people when they're looking for GC roles is ideally you come from the inside. It sends a great message to the team that's there and you know the company, you know the business, you have the relationships. Um, what can be hard for internal candidates is that people also know you. So nobody's perfect. You have warts, you have weaknesses, development opportunities. And so it's sometimes easier for somebody coming, not that it's ever easy, but it can in that whole process, which we know can be quite subjective, is someone from the outside looks like the bright, shiny object. Right, right. But you prevailed. You actually came out on top in that process, so good for you. Um, you, you mentioned uh, the internal candidates almost being known too well because they've been there for a while. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think about um, you and how you fit into the GC role and the things you did that make you successful, as well as the things that may become a little bit harder and less natural to you. Um, what are the, what are your attributes that helped you succeed in that, in your job? And what are the things you had to work harder at to become effective as a GC? First of all, I feel like it's pretty important to understand what the culture is of a company. And I know people say that all the time, but I feel like you really can't un underemphasize that. Um, and to understand the leadership, obviously the CEO, but also who your colleagues are on the leadership team, the board, because you, you essentially report to the board too. And to understand like what's going, what are the dynamics of what's happening in the company at the time? Like when, when you become GC, is there also a new CEO? Is there a new CEO who's never been the GC of a, like in my case, a public company? Um, has there been a major transformational transaction or change within the company? How is the company's business going on at that time? And so what I've learned is trying to assess the culture, the business situation and what will what will help uh, the CEO and others succeed and how can you contribute to the to the success of the company and believe me I, I didn't always get it right like some <laughs> it was definitely plenty of learning along the way and I would say, really understanding and taking the time to build relationships and think about um, what's going on in that person's situation. Like, have they just moved for another company and they're new to the role and they're trying to figure out the business and the team and all that. And like, how can you help them be successful in their role? Well, you know, you 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 touch on a lot of things that are just um, sort of accumulated wisdom from years of doing this. 
I, I, I've got to believe that at the beginning of your career, when you were, when you first became GC for the first time, some of this might have been less obvious to you, right? And you sort of learn yeah. on the job. And so all of us will have stubbed our toes along the way and made mistakes as we learn some of these lessons, sometimes not so easily. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. Yeah. And especially if you come up internally, you need to think very consciously about they used to see you in a certain role. How do you sort of pivot and put on a different hat, so to speak, because you're now you're now like in that different position and what are you going to give up and how do you make your team successful um, around you? Yeah, yeah. So. You then went off from there to your current role. And um, I, I want you to take a moment to describe that role. But before you get there, I'm curious, what is it that led to that move? How, in other words, what um, process did you go through to decide that you were ready for a change, for something different? Um, how do you reach that decision? And what factors really affected how you thought about that? Yeah. Well, once again, I, I didn't plan that. Um, but I feel like being open to new opportunities when they present themselves is something that's really important to me. And I think just a part of being curious to see what's out there. So I was very happy at Agilent. In some ways it was less risky, more comfortable being there. Uh, but it was also a chance going to eBay to completely shift industries, to learn a set of new issues, to, to go from more of a B2B business and HP that I'd been at prior to Agilent was largely B2B to go into a very consumer facing internet e-commerce uh, faster moving in terms of just the landscape around it. Uh, business. So it was a little bit scary, but also pretty exciting. And so that's why I decided to move. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you just mentioned a lot of new things about the new role that were very appealing to you. Uh, it does, you know, kind of naturally suggest the question about how important you think industry expertise is to a to the hiring of a GC, because you came in not, not necessarily knowing all of these issues that well, because you were new to the sector, right. but apparently it didn't matter. So how does a company think about that issue when they're looking for their next GC? I think it really depends upon what's happening at the company at the time. And a number of, of people who are in-house and fairly senior have asked me, what's the right background if I want to become a GC? You've probably gotten that question. Yes. And there's, I think, a mistaken historical maybe assumption that you have to have a corporate M&A securities background. And yes, that's definitely one route if you're coming from in-house, right? A lot of GCs come from law firms or they come from the government or um, other areas. But if you're talking about coming from another in-house role, that's not necessarily the best way. In other words, it can really depend upon what does the company need at that time? 
maybe they need really good litigation experience or IP experience or commercial, or maybe they've just gone through a major crisis and they need somebody from the outside, like from government or a law firm. And so I, I think it just totally depends upon what's, what's going on there, which, which is good, right? Because for all of you out there, you don't have to feel like, oh my God, I don't have the right background to, to become a GC. Yeah, so you would say it's not a particular substantive expertise necessarily, um, because it just depends on the match between the need of the company and the attributes of the candidate at any given time. And sometimes yes. it's really hard to predict. Yeah, and it's certainly helpful if you have a strong team um, to help you. And I certainly owe it all to my team, who's super knowledgeable and very business savvy and great at what they do, because yeah. they helped me tremendously. So let me uh, turn to a discussion about the GC role and, and kind of your views on it. And I'll ask these questions, not with maybe even this particular role in mind, but with any of the roles you've, you've played during your career. So you can answer them generically or however you mm -hmm. wish. Um, I'd love to hear what it is you like the most about being GC, but also conversely, what do you like the least? You know, what parts of the job do you really wish you didn't have, but of course come with the territory, both sides of that coin? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I actually like the newness and the un unpredictability of the issues that you face every day. I mean, it's never dull. It's never boring. It sometimes makes it hard to figure out or feel like you're getting things done during the day. I love um, how law intersects with business, with policy, with technology, and thinking about innovation and new issues and how do you apply law to that, whether it's things like NFTs or digital assets or blockchain or just um, areas that didn't exist years ago or certainly not when I started practicing or how the concept of privacy has changed over the years. And so I love that part. Mm -hmm. um, I love the people part, whether it's working with, if you think about all the stakeholders, right? From customers, shareholders, the board, employees, your team, the communities where you live and work. I love the multifaceted nature of that. Um, what don't I like? Oh, there's plenty of stuff I don't like, right? <laughs> I mean, every job has its grind elements. Um, if I had to say, sometimes all the budgeting work uh, is, is hard, right? It's critical, but it's not necessarily my favorite thing all the time. What about... Um... What, what I found one of, more, one of the most challenging things about this job is managing a team, managing people. Obviously working with great people, um, developing them, nurturing them um, is all great, but it doesn't always work out. And managing an organization also means managing people problems. So 
How did you get good at that? And what kinds of things should young lawyers do to develop that skill set, which is a very important part of the job? Um, I feel like that's a lifelong journey and that uh, people are not necessarily born knowing how to lead a large global diverse team in say 15 plus countries. And it's like anything else where it constantly learning by doing, making mistakes, having some successes, learning what works well, what doesn't work well, observing others, getting feedback, right? It's so important to get feedback, not just from your superiors, but from your peers, from your subordinates. I think that's like under being self-aware. I mean, we all have our blind spots and- No, you don't have any, come on. <laughs> I have tons of that, believe me. <laughs> And so just being open to change and learning, I mean, if you think about what lawyers, whether you're in government, law firm, academia, private sector, what people have been going through the last two years with COVID, right? I don't care how great a leader you were before this, you've had to really think differently about how do I connect with, inspire, help people continue to learn and grow in very challenging circumstances. Yeah. So you mentioned the importance of getting feedback. So mm -hmm. let's get really granular about that. Yeah. Um, how do you actually do it? Um, uh, the, you could be you as a GC, you could also be a mid-level associate or it could be a you know, deputy general counsel somewhere. How do people effectively get feedback even though it may be hard to hear or something they really need to hear to grow themselves. How do you, how do you actually do it practically? Yeah. So I think there's some formal and informal ways of doing that. Let's start with the formal. Uh, formal could be doing something like asking for 360 feedback where, uh, and there are a number of tools and systems to do that. And I think the best way to do that is to have an independent party collecting that feedback and then providing it to you in a way where it's not attributed to anyone in particular, but that you get the benefit of that feedback. You can also um, certainly, depending upon where you work, um, your place of employment probably or hopefully has a system for you to get feedback from not just your superior, but possibly your peers, they might ask you to name people from whom your boss or somebody from the people team could solicit feedback from. Um, informally, I think it's always important and sometimes people are more or less apt uh, or willing to give feedback to you. And especially if there's somebody that you're close with or who's sort of like a work buddy to you, like you could say walking out of a meeting, hey, that was a little bit of a rough meeting. Hmm. Like, what do you think? Or what do you think I or we could have done differently? And the more you can do that in the moment and really being open to that, uh, 
I think the better off you'll be, as you said, it can be hard and sometimes really painful to get feedback, but it's actually a gift, even though it may not feel like it in the moment. Um, but if you can actually receive it with an open mind, uh, it'll benefit you, even if maybe you don't realize it right away. Well, I know sometimes I've gotten feedback, which I initially rejected right off the bat as being completely wrong. And of course, then you realize it ain't so wrong <laughs> and you really have to have to digest it. I mean, can you think of any feedback you got that might have been uncomfortable for you, but actually made you better and more effective once you incorporated it? So when I first became GC, I was talking about how you have to shift out of your prior role. And just learning to give up and to delegate more and to understand uh, and empower your people to, to do the work, to figure out how, how to do things and to realize that even if they're doing something with a different approach than you might take, that's okay. And maybe it's even better. Than what, God what, forbid. God forbid. <laughs> and it probably is better. <laughs> yeah. But that's hard, right? Because we, many of us are, are trained to be perfectionists. We learn how to do things in a certain way. And then we convince ourselves that's the best way possible. Right. And then you, then you have to let go. And you have to yeah. motivate your team by letting them do it their way. Definitely letting go. And there are sometimes, I think we all know people who always want to be the smartest person in the room. And sometimes they are, but personally, I don't feel like that's a good goal. Yeah. Because you probably miss something or you're just focusing so much on oh, I got to put in that perfect comment that you're not really hearing everybody else and you're not listening. Yep. So um, let me ask you about um, the role of the GC vis-a-vis -vis the other C-suite executives. Some people have the view that the GC role is actually unique in a corporation because in addition to being one of the members of senior management who helps to shape decisions and strategy for the company, the GC also has this distinctive role in being almost a dual report to the board, having governance responsibilities, and often the GC is involved in overseeing both board and executive change in a way that other C-suite officials aren't. So, what is your view about that? Is, is the GC role just distinct in a way that's unique compared to all of the other C-suite positions? So I, I do think that is an important distinction um, from other positions. Maybe the closest might be the CFO at times, or for instance, the head of internal audit hmm. who reports directly to the audit committee. And, but as, as you noted that the GC could be involved with 
uh, board refreshment or changes, or potentially with leadership changes as well. And as you noted, it's not likely, maybe the head of the people team or HR might be involved with some of that. Right. Um, but otherwise not, probably not most of the other C-suite positions. Yeah, I think some people believe that that puts the lawyer, the head lawyer in a somewhat distinctive position, even vis-a-vis -vis his or her colleagues, which sometimes creates odd tensions in relationships just because of that fact. But that's a, it's, a, it's an unavoidable fact and therefore there it is. Yep. Yeah. So um, you, um, in addition to your GC role, are also um, involved in other business activities for which you've been given some responsibility, um, whether it's, you know, kind of uh, out of office work or reloca office relocations or, you know, security issues um, that are not necessarily legal in nature or only legal in nature. Um, how do you feel about taking on those extra legal responsibilities uh, and how you're prepared for that? So I've had government relations and public policy for uh, quite a while, both at Agilent um, and at eBay. And at Agilent, I also had the communications team and the foundation. Um, and then fairly recently at eBay, the um, security and resiliency, so business continuity. I like that. I think it um, provides variety and if you have, once again, have a great team, I don't think that you should expect to be an expert in everything that you oversee. That's why you have good people. Um, but I think it it's useful and it's helpful, frankly. And I thought where you were gonna go with the question was serving on boards, which I think is also helpful in the role. Well, you, I mean, you read- you, you read my mind because that was yeah. going to be my next question, yeah. which is in addition to, to those corporate roles you've taken on, you also sit on some outside company boards, um, which uh, is uh, great, um, although I think unusual for some folks because many companies don't allow it or don't encourage it. Um, I, I'm heartened to see that you're doing it. How do you juggle all of those responsibilities? I, I know you sit on what is it two or three outside corporate boards. Well, really essentially one outside one. corporate okay. board, yeah. because the second one is something that my work asked me to serve on. Mm. And so, um, yeah, that one is in connection with the business we sold and we, we retained a stake in that. And so we got to have two representatives got it. on that other board. So really right. it's work. <laughs> right. Um, and then the other one, so we do allow um, executives to serve on one outside role. And frankly, I think it makes you be a better business leader. Um, because for one thing, speaking of boards, it's really useful to see what it's like sitting on the other side of the table. I mean, well, I was, in fact, I was going to ask you, what yeah. insights have you gained from being a board member as opposed to a GC of a company which is responding to the board? Yeah. Well, for one, you're super sympathetic with, <laughs> with the leadership team about how much work goes into preparing for the board and committee meetings and and really realizing like, oh my gosh, every single comment 
how to make sure every comment doesn't get interpreted into like sending a lot of people scurrying and doing a bunch of work. Right. Um, and also, but just really recognizing as a board member, how do you add value and how that's very different from the role of an operator, right? At being a member of the C-suite, you're an operator, but the distinction of those roles is so critical. And just trying to understand and sort of really pull up and just focus on adding value from the broader strategic and external landscape. Um, and then, so then on the flip side, what that helps me and others on the executive leadership team do is to understand, okay, what, what would be most helpful to the board and how do you present that in a way that's very easily and quickly digestible for board members who don't, who don't live and work um, and think about these issues 24 seven, like when you work at a company. Well, it sounds like it's a win-win for, for both of those vantage points. Yeah. Uh, for you to serve, serve on a board, you see it from both perspectives and improves, I think, both roles, which is, I think, a great outcome. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer in uh, constantly learning about new issues, even if it's not directly relevant to your specific job or work at the time, because it what it does is it helps you think and see how different people in various industries approach problems and how they, um, it's sort of strange how it, it can really help you think about it, even if it's not directly applicable. Hmm. No, I totally agree. Well, we are just about out of time. So I'm gonna ask you one parting question, which is this, I mean, you are, extremely accomplished, probably unbelievably busy, uh, juggling a zillion things at the same time all the time. So if and when you do get free time, what is it you run to do? What is it you miss that you go to when you have a free moment, a free day, a free week, a free month to go pursue something else? Yeah. So apart from my family, which is number one, and actually that's one thing I, I want to emphasize is um, my life is not my work. My life is first and foremost, my family. <laughs> and I hope that most people emphasize that as, as well. Um, but apart from that and spending time with family and friends, um, my husband and I love to cycle. So cycling in the hills in the Bay area, getting up to skyline, going on cycling trips if we're so lucky in Europe. Um, I'm trying to learn Korean. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm trying to learn how to um, do ink and watercolor drawing very badly and slowly. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so there's a lot of things I'd love to do if I can. 
So, Marie, you mentioned the importance of family, which I think is absolutely true. Um, you are an incredibly successful and accomplished corporate executive, general counsel. You also have a family and you've raised children. Um, none of that could have been easy. So what advice do you have for younger lawyers just beginning their careers, um, maybe thinking about starting a family and how to deal with the competing demands on their time, personal, family, and professional? Yeah, so that's a great question. And first of all, I want to encourage whether it's women or men, um, because men care about this just as much as, as women do, but obviously sometimes the, the natural burden can fall more on women and our society tends to place more of it on, on women too, is I would really say, um, even if you have to pull back a little or you choose to pull back a little, like stay in the game. It, it, my personal view, it's harder if you step out and it might be a little bit harder like to get back on the same track um, financially to that same level. So that's one thing. But putting that aside is, um, I think it's a, it's a matter, it's a deeply personal question, right? In terms of timing and what you choose to do and how you prioritize. And there are trade-offs. Um, I also feel like your career can kind of go in waves where sometimes you might focus more on your work and sometimes you might focus a little bit more on family and that's okay. Because think about your career as a really long-term thing. And what you do like one month, two months, one year, two years, I mean, whatever, isn't going to dictate like the arc of your life. And so maybe give yourself a little bit of a break if you're not always going 120%, for instance, on your career. And then also, if you're fortunate enough, like take advantage of if you happen to have a great partner or family support or friends around you, take advantage of that help and support. If you're fortunate enough to have financial resources to help pay for some help, like do that. And then what I find just as hard or can be at times is like learn to let go of some things. So in my family, like the notes, your the cute little notes your kids write about what they're thankful for. We still have one on our microwave when my son was nine. He wrote, I'm thankful for Primo's from dad. Meaning, and Primo's was our name for like special Sunday dinners. And it, like you could say, oh, I'm not making the Primo's, but they know that I do other things and that their dad is the one who's the great cook. Or I never was the one who made like homemade dishes and brought it to my kids' school. Now I prioritized other things like traveling with them to their various sporting events around the country or doing different things. And so just learning what's right for you and your situation in your family, and also recognizing that it's not always gonna be easy, 
but that you're in it for the long haul and also be kind to yourself. Like cut yourself a little bit of slack and recognize that even if you make some mistakes or it's tough, but it's really rewarding and to make sure that your work just doesn't all consume you, that your life and having that sort of interwoven fabric is going to make you a much better human being and also probably a better and more productive employee and lawyer. So Marie, let me ask one follow-up, which is from your vantage point, do you think that the law profession, do you think that corporate America over time has gotten better at accommodating this set of issues? Or do you think we've made not enough progress? I think we've made some progress, but it's been slow, especially in the US compared to other countries, it's been slow, like in terms of things like paid family leave and all that. Um, I think we have a long ways to go. And uh, we as leaders and, and people in positions of power can really help. And it's even just little things like talking about your families or talking about your family responsibilities or asking your team members about their families or how they're doing. I mean, assuming they wanna talk about it so that it gets more integrated into who people are, meaning that they can bring their whole selves to work. Well, Marie, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been uh, great for me and for our audience to hear about your story and about uh, your insights. So thank you so much for sharing them with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.